Welcome to episode one of A Tale from Two Brothers Podcast. I'm H.C. Store. Over the next, well, however many episodes this takes, I will be reading The Shadow of Nisipote. Now, I want to be completely honest. I am not a professional actor. That trailer you just listened to? Yeah. That's the very first thing I have ever recorded and sent out into the digital world. I know. Crazy, right? I imagine there's going to be a fairly large learning curve as I progress week to week. But my hope is, as I learn and post each episode, I can overcome any rookie mistakes fairly quickly. Now, this book has been my baby for quite a few years now. And, well, I just want to do it justice. So, without further ado, I give to you The Shadow of Nisipote. Prologue, Lisbon, November 1st, 1755. Ugh! Edwin exploded, hurling his tricorn hat to the wooden planks at his feet. The squawking galls above and bitter tastes of the salty morning breeze were doing very little to improve his mood. These blasted religious rules make commerce with the Portuguese impossible! Sir? Tiago? His translator blinked. No... Don't translate that. Edwin sighed as he ran a hand through his thick black hair. Que foi? The dockmaster, object of Edwin's contempt, pressed. Nada, nada. El está frustrado. Tiago turned from the dockmaster and spoke to Edwin. You see, it's All Saints Day. It's going to be... I know what day it is, blast it all! It doesn't change the fact that I need to get underway as soon as bloody possible. He smacked his hand on the nearest crate, setting the glass bottles inside, clinking from the blow. Am I supposed to just let my shipment rot away on the dock? I have to load! Since the Crown's embargo on French wine, selling port had become a lucrative business between London and Lisbon. To this end, Edwin had sunk every guinea he had into filling this small portion of the dock with each bottle and barrel of wine he could lay his hands on. However... It would be of little use if he couldn't get underway before the war between France and England came to an end. Not today, nor tomorrow, only on Monday, the dockmaster yelled back in Portuguese. Instantly, Edwin and the dockmaster started in on each other in dueling tongues and wagging fingers. The handsome Englishman leaned over the much shorter dockmaster, trying to impose his will. Taking a step back from the posturing Englishman, the dockmaster pointed to Tiago and demanded, You tell him it's either mass or the king's men. If they insist on breaking the law, I will have him and all of his crew arrested. He cannot load today. With that, the dockmaster set his jaw and folded his arms. Tiago turned to Edwin deflated. His translation of the dockmaster's edict sounded more like an armistice for the defeated. And mass? the dockmaster pressed. He didn't speak English well, but he knew what was going on. Tiago ducked his head. Uh, He also requests that we attend Mass. Edwin spun in frustration. What a fine pickle. No wonder the English kicked the Pope from his high horse. What did he say? The dockmaster asked. Nothing, nothing. The translator attempted to soothe the man with open palms. Turning, he put his cheek to Edwin's ear. Sir, I think maybe I can help. Here in Portugal, there's always a thread of business woven into the rules. 
Edwin started to nod, tucking his hand into his sharp blue coat. He wants a bribe. It was a long shot, one that could send the whole lot of them to prison, but it was the only path Edwin could see left. Quickly, Tiago grabbed his boss by the wrist. Please, let me handle this. It must be done delicately. Fine, Edwin excelled. Senor, Tiago turned back around, the leather coin purse behind his back. In a flourish of Portuguese, he negotiated with the dockmaster. These English are all born with a nose like a hound for money, but they miss the gentle refinements of life. Wouldn't you agree? The dockmaster smiled slyly. And so now you wish to give me a spoonful of honey. I will not relent. They will not load the wine. Understand? Tiago nodded. I explained this to him. He is a good, God-fearing man with a wife and child. I think he is just worried about returning home before the weather sours. The dockmaster raised an eyebrow. Go on. I have explained to him our laws, senor, and he understands. But do you not think it our duty as Catholics to re-educate the English on how to celebrate the day? I am sure they would not mind relaxing with our generosity. And to show his thanks, my patron is willing to add a case of our country's finest wine and three gold sovereigns to enhance the festivities. That is, as long as he and his crew have access to the dock this evening. After sundown, Tiago smiled innocently. Hmm, the fat man mused. It would take at least eight sovereigns to keep the magistrates from spoiling the day. Relieved that the dockmaster was willing to barter, Tiago countered. I'm sure four sovereigns and another case of wine would do it. Wouldn't you agree? The dockmaster narrowed his eyes on an oblivious Edwin. Yes, that, and they come with me to mass. He was pliable, but still religious. Tiago turned to Edwin and whispered the details to his ear. Yes, yes, tell him I will go to mass. The whole blasted crew will. I'll be baptized a Catholic if it means he will let us load after dark, Edwin crowed. Holding his hand out, the fat dockmaster wasted no time taking to his palm sovereign coin from Edwin's satchel. Two cases, Edwin's two digits aimed skyward. Sir? The first mate looked confused. Edwin shuffled his head back towards the dockmaster. Mr. Harris, I need two cases of the 1746 sent to his office. Ah, Harris instantly understood. Billy, Tom, get up, ye swab. Also, Mr. Harris, inform the captain and gather the crew. We are going to need to become religious for a day, Edwin interrupted. The first mate's weathered face pulled back, ready to laugh. You're serious? As the grave, Mr. Harris, as the grave. In an organized procession, Edwin's crew marched single file as the dockmaster paraded them towards the ringing bells of the Cathedral of Santa Caterina of Misericordia. The morning was beautiful and still, the sun warming the earth as it climbed into the sky. Halfway to the cathedral, the calm of men paused to take in the restful bliss of a splashing fountain, the rhythm of the cascading water mesmerizing. Something ain't right, sir. One of the sailors was the first to speak. Edwin turned an ear to the eerie barking. He hadn't noticed the noise. His thoughts were with the wine on the dock. That is peculiar. Be-woo!
The distant baying grew with intensity, echoing among the tall buildings as if the hounds of hell had been loosed. Just up the path, three horses struggled with their masters, trembling and whinnying against the reins holding them in place. Without warning, the ground underfoot began to throb as the air fell dead on the sailors' ears. Like cracks of thunder, fractures began to twist up the plastered walls of the grand medieval buildings and shattering pops. As quick as it came, the shaking ceased. What was that? The bosun was the first to speak. Edwin surveyed his crew. Every face had turned ashen, a few salty lads even crossing themselves. Stillness fell over every soul as the seconds passed like a tonic on their nerves. Whimpering, several stray dogs scurried up the street to the crest of the hill, their whines fading in a deafening rumble as the earth began to move once more. With grating pops, the cobbles savagely cracked and twisted like the devil himself was under the stones, tilling the earth with the edge of his iron fork, his violent thrusts hurling the sure-footed sailors from their feet. The fissures tore apart the road, racing into a building on the right. With straining groans, the plaster stone relented, and the structure collapsed upon itself, sending a great cloud of dust billowing through the lane. Instead of offering a reprieve, the quaking continued, growing in intensity as another building began to break apart with huge chunks of masonry dropping into the street. Move! Edwin stumbled toward the dockmaster, coxswain, and ship's carpenter yelling. Lurching to his knees and then to his chest, he watched in horror as a crushing weight of the building buried all three men instantly. Edwin gripped the ground in terror, the quaking beneath him shaking like the rush of a thousand horses as lime plaster and stones the size of fists pounded his back. Unable to close his eyes, he saw his own mortality reflected in the bloody, tattooed hand of the ship's carpenter groping from under the rubble until it became still inches from his face. An image of his wife and child flashed through his mind unbidden, and within a second he relived their years together. There was a trust and some money, but would it last? Edwin was no stranger to the cruelty of the world, and the haunting image of them left as carrion to the evil of men was almost more than he could bear. Too slowly the quaking began to ease, then it stopped altogether. First, no one dared move. The cacophony of neighing horses, barking dogs, and far-off noises just minutes before had now stilled. The great city was as quiet as a tomb. Coughing, Edwin sucked in a breath of wonderful life, the shock and gratitude of his survival pushing him to his feet. All too quickly the uncertain, terror-filled tranquility was punctuated by disjointed moans and wails rending the air. Back to the boat, he croaked. Reaching down, Edwin pulled a man to his feet and yelled, Back to the boat! Sir? One of the new hands balked in confusion, his eyes fixed on the dead. We can't help him, Hastings. Mr. Harris leaned upon Edwin's shoulder. The boss is right. Back to the ship. Step lively, lads. The water don't shake like this. Once again, the earth beneath their feet started to tremble, then stopped immediately. Load what you can, now, Edwin ordered as the crew rushed to the dock. The neat stacks of wine cases and barrels they had left on the pier minutes before were now strewn about like children's blocks in a broken, bleeding mess. Hefting a case that dripped with crimson wine, Edwin handed it off to the nearest sailor. He was scared, but had not lost his grip. 
Edwin still felt certain he could salvage a profit for his family's sake. You heard him, Captain McCaslin yelled from the deck. Move your backsides, ye swabs. Aye, aye, Captain, the men snapped too, order and discipline overcoming their shock. At the head of the brigade, Edwin was not above getting dirty as he passed the tinkling crates he wanted in the boom nets first. Fear had replaced the normal banter, and without mumbling a word, the crew loaded the goods into the hold of the ship. Confident that everything was in hand, Edwin mounted the gangplate to board the Merry May. Midway up, he paused and watched in horror as a steep 30-degree incline shifted downward before his eyes until the ship's deck had sunk lower than the pier, its keel squelching into the silt of the exposed sea floor. The Merry May's oaken boards settled with a great creaking groan as it came to rest, pressed against the strained pillars of the dock. What the devil? Captain McCaslin climbed off the deck and atop the pier. Crawling up to his feet, he stood next to Edwin, looking in stunned disbelief as the ocean emptied out towards the west. It's like a hole has opened up and swallowed the deep, one of the crew blurted out. Could it? Edwin asked, his eyes wide. I don't know. Though not a religious man, Captain McCaslin crossed himself. Turning from the awful sight, Edwin followed the sound of hundreds of footsteps as the citizens of Lisbon rushed to the docks in a frenzy to escape the destruction and choking ash of the once great city. The Lisbon they had arrived at a mere week ago, with its great Gothic structures of stone, was now all but gone. It was as if a fine gilded mirror had been dropped. The stately buildings now lay shattered and broken, plumes of smoke reaching heavenward. Lord have mercy! The words drew every eye to the sea as low billows of white sprouted in the distance. Moments passed as a swelling mist rose higher in the air. Back on the pier, the refugees screamed, scurrying back into the burning city. What had been a dull, distant rush, like a gust of wind, began to build into a ferocious gale as a deafening rumble of water, now reaching forty feet in the air, approached faster than a frothing horse under whip. As the shadow of the crushing deep cascaded forward, Edwin crumpled to his knees with a plea of immortality. His breath growing quick and shallow, he bowed down to the earth as the roaring bulwark of water pounded into his very being, flooding his lungs with the hope of forgiveness. Forgiveness for failing his wife and child. Part 1. Cornwall to London Chapter 1. Penzance, 1757. Why, of course she's pretty, a solitary feminine voice squawked. She's French! The high, screechy timbre of her exclamation continued to echo through the entire chapel, long after every other murmur had silenced. Standing next to the altar, Jacques cringed with a smirk of embarrassment for the batty woman. To many of the other prattling hens of the village, Miss Puddlemire was a paragon of virtuous gossip. To most everyone else, she was proven more the fool each time she shouted her thoughts like a barker. Whatever she was, her embarrassment was a welcome relief for Jacques' worried mind. At only twelve, he could feel something amiss with his newly minted stepfather, but like a royal guard, he stood motionless to that fact. Perfect to the part, he was a handsome lad with coal-black hair pulled back by a white ribbon, his bleached ivory waistcoat pinching at his middle. When the matter had ended, 
That was how Jacques preferred to think of the wedding. He was pleased to take his place in the waiting carriage. There, he could bask in the radiant glow of his mother's hopeful smile as the throng of villagers shouted hurrahs at the happy couple. It was a rare instance of sunshine that eased the knot in his stomach as the driver cracked the whip over the horse's ears, sending the carriage bouncing towards Shellstone Manor. Jacques had always loved living in the grandest home in town. For Penzance, Shellstone was a great crowning residence, maybe not equal in grandeur to the homes of the Cornish gentry, but worth much more to the villagers as it represented the success of a common local hero. It was only fitting that Edwin had filled such a glorious home with Margot's foreign beauty. Taking notice of his mother's eye, Jacques buried his unease by offering a practiced smile. For a moment, all was well while she sat with her head resting on his stepfather's shoulder, her light blue dress floating in wisps from the breeze coming through the carriage windows. The moment was ruined as Nathan put a clumsy hand to her chestnut ringlets that jostled loose. It's like holding back water. He finally laughed at his futile effort. Margot's eyes filled with smiles as her ruby lips coyly cracked at the comedy of it all. The exchange instantly repelled Jacques, who preferred to think upon anything else. Nathan was just too perfect. Even his smile was cold, like stone, holding a masonry tension as if his lips contained a secret ready to jump out at any moment. We will go hunt and game, you and I, Nathan broke Jacques' contemplation, running a confident hand through his own golden hair. That is, when me and your mum return from our trip. Yes, Margot agreed. Lord Chestworth invited your father many times. I think he would be happy to host his son. Jacques painted on his smile and nodded in agreement. Like so many men before him, those held in highest esteem of life, Jacques's real father had become a near object of defecation upon his passing. As the most profitable merchant in town, Edwin had gained considerable wealth while alive, wealth that buoyed the local economy. Now dead, it seemed as if he was both Robin Hood and King Arthur in the eyes of the villagers. There were even stories that circulated about him in Herculean proportions. When the great Lisbon quake of 55 came, he had somehow outrun the rolling earth to board his ship, hefting the first mate upon his back. As the story goes, he tried to save his ship and crew, and had nearly succeeded, failing only when the ocean opened and swallowed the Merry May whole. Not that anyone really knew what had happened. His father could have been running for his life with every other inhabitant of the doomed city. To Jacques, it didn't matter. Any man who thought to replace Edwin would be either the incarnation of Richard the Lionheart or Caligula. Nathan may have looked the part, but he was not Edwin. As Shellstone came into view, Jacques leaned out of the carriage with a wide grin, the grand structure gleaming in resplendent glory with ribbons and bowries of fresh flowers prepared for the wedding feast. Jacques, you will get your clothes all dirty, Margot admonished as she pulled him back to his seat. Oui, mère. Jacques sat back contrite. Nathan looked on with a smile that didn't quite reach his eyes. While I'm not one for French, it does sound mighty beautiful coming from you, my dear. Leaning down, Nathan brushed his lips to Margot's as Jacques looked away. But for my benefit, could we please speak in English? 
just so I can understand. But of course, Margot laughed at Nathan's mock pout. It was just a force of habit. We have been too long without an Englishman in our home, eh, Jacques? Oui, mère, Jacques replied, his innocent smile hardly able to contain his disgust. With a laugh, his mother ruffled his black hair. You naughty boy! It is not polite to tease your new father! With another grin, Jacques turned and rushed into the house, but not before seeing the smile slip from Nathan's face. The freshly trimmed grass of Shellstone's opulent garden was quickly trodden underfoot by the throng of guests who feasted upon nods and whispers as much as a succulent pork. Eager to avoid the gossip, and despite his social standing above the other children from the village, Jacques was all too willing to soil his bright white breeches in playing games. It was in this pursuit, his burnt black hair slowly freeing itself from the ribbon on the back of his head, that he became engrossed in a more important task, finding the beautiful Anna. She was a pretty thing a year older than himself, and he couldn't wait to see her light golden ringlets dripping from her white cap, the image of her perfect nose over mature lips intoxicating to his thoughts. Consumed with this quest, he became the object of teasing to the other children as they called out, Jack, Jack, he's on his back. At this, he discovered that the most profound feelings of love have their limits. He detested the common pronunciation of his name. It was as if it soiled the French heritage his mother had endeared to him. Frustrated with the children taunting him from their hiding places, Jacques abandoned the games and snatched up a plate of food, crawling under a half-empty table to nurse his pride with a lemon tart he found himself drawn into a conversation of an odd pair of voices. Are you the groom's relation, then? The squat legs of a heavyset man spoke through a mouthful of food. Jacques recognized the voice of Mr. Adelson straight away. His counterpart's legs shifted uncomfortably in his well-worn burgundy suit. Why, yes, Gov. Me's a Nathan go way back. I saved his life once. Well, jolly good. Saved his life. On a whaler? Mr. Adelson blurted, eager for more information about Nathan. Whaler? The stranger twisted in his chair and continued with a smile in his voice. Why, yes, a whaler. That's right. We was mates on a whaling crew. Well, I would say it's a bit better that Maggie has found such a fine young gentleman. After the death of Edwin, well, the town took it hard. He was the most prosperous merchant this side of Cornwall. The bloke shipped loads and loads of tin and textiles. Contacts all over the continent. Adelson's words spit through a second bite. It was beginning to look like hard times had come to the village if his business was not to be salvaged. That was when your friend Nathan arrived. First mate, ship's clerk, cartographer. I mean, the list of credentials is immeasurable. The fat man gulped down a glass of wine. Well, let's just say he's a right heavenly angel. Well, she's not so bad herself. The odd man sounded oily. Does she come by a fortune, dowry, or a great family? Oh, no, no. Disowned. Disavowed by her parents the moment she ran off with our young Edwin. Mr. Adelson clucked. No, I suppose her family is wealthy, although I'm not sure that anyone really knows. Shame that, filthy frogs, the stranger observed. 
Rolling his eyes, Jacques decided it was time he moved on. He had become accustomed to the droll of so many against his mother's nationality that the words quickly became tiresome. Slipping from underneath the table, he looked back at the odd man speaking with the portly Mr. Adelson. The stranger was a mixture of fragmented features, his thin silver hair hanging limp in greasy strands. Jacques swallowed with unease as the man's crooked face split into a lopsided grin, a thick scar running from his eyebrow to his chin, keeping his right cheek immobile. Oh, yes, yes, very much a shame. Mr. Adelson paused at the sight of the young boy. Although she has us, and now Nathan. Oi, good old Nathan, angel of Penzance. The stranger smiled for an audience and raised his goblet. Jack! The familiar light voice caused the hair on Jacques's neck to stand on end. There you are. His hatred for the name had not abated, but after a quick assessment, he was willing to forgive this one person. Reluctantly, Jacques finally pulled his eyes from the stranger and turned to face the girl. Oh, Anna, well, I brought you this, but it looks like you've already eaten. Anna lifted a small apple in one hand and a roll in the other. Jacques couldn't help but stare, his words lost in the girl's fine beauty. It was like gazing into the sun. He was sure he was going to go blind, but every few seconds he had to take a peek. Thank you, he reached out with a quick hand and took the golden fruit. Well, I couldn't let you starve. After all, my name is Jacques. Interrupting her, he nervously ducked his head. Rude or not, Jacques desperately wanted her to call him by his given name. Oh, Anna's smile faltered. I suppose it'll be Master Jacques soon enough. Jacques looked surprised. Um, he had secured me a place in the house, she pressed. Jacques's fingers curled into the apple. He was young, and these feelings may have been exciting and new, but even he understood the rules. Maids and servants were like drapery and silver, seen and used, but mostly ignored. Isn't it exciting? she laughed. No. No, it's not. Jacques shuffled a few steps back, unable to hide his disappointment. He gave a curt nod, turned, and stormed away. If she was to be a maid, they couldn't be friends. In fact, he wasn't even sure they could talk anymore. Chapter 2 Nathan sat deep behind Edwin's former desk his chin on his chest while his fingers picked nervously at the exposed grain of the wooden arms. He hadn't been home more than a few days from his month-long absence with Miss Nathan Margot Hodges, yet he already loathed the tedious work. It was as if luck had smiled down upon him when he was introduced to the beautiful Margot. She was the best kind of widow, filthy rich. Once the shine of the honeymoon had worn off, the dull drudgery of reality came calling. The late husband had left a handsome trust for his wife and son, a trust that Nathan could live on comfortably. The business, on the contrary, teetered as if it had been erected on stilts. Every penny in the coffers had been gambled on Edwin's tin-for-wine venture. When the tidal wave crushed the Merry May, it had pulverized every other aspect of Peter's shipping along with it. Edwin's office in town had been untouched since the day he had left for Portugal a little more than two years before. 
the crooked oil painting of a vessel anchored in a placid harbor on the opposite wall, was coated in a fine layer of dust. Below that sat a spindly-legged table, cobwebs evenly distributed over three upturned glasses and a cut crystal decanter. The entire feel of the office was as foreboding as the black-oiled oak that paneled the walls. Equal to the rest of the fixtures, the feature most prominent was the sharp-nosed, gaunt-faced bank official, Mr. Openshaw. I have not had the peculiarity of sitting at this desk for more than a week, and already an intrinsic visitor requests to have a debt collected that I am not inclined to owe. Nathan feigned indignation, trying to use words he didn't quite understand. He was drowning in deep water. Mr. Openshaw's long face barely moved as he spoke with no emotion. You are correct, sir. You personally owe no debt. However, the previous tenant of Peter's shipping commissioned a vessel on funds loaned to him by our institution. Granted, there is nothing that can be done to retrieve that vessel, and we understand that Peter's shipping is in no way at fault for its loss. This has no bearing on the fact that Peter's shipping does owe the debt. Now, as its agent, you are obligated... How much did the previous purveyor owe? Nathan leaned forward. There is an outstanding balance of three thousand pounds and sixpence, Mr. Openshaw replied. I ain't got no three thousand pounds! Nathan stood, banging his hand on the desk. Mr. Openshaw sat back with wide eyes. Straightening, Nathan pulled at his waistcoat, recovering his thin veneer of composure. <sighs> Sir... Peter's shipping hasn't even the means to send cargo. How could we repay such a debt? Well, there is a sloop still on your company's books, Mr. Openshaw quipped. Nathan stomped to the window and pointed. And there it sits! Pausing, he chewed the side of his cheek, trying to control his temper. As you can see, without sail or rigging, the sloop needs to be recalked along with a dozen other repairs. You ask for three thousand and sixpence, when what I has is a rotten skeleton of a ship and no crew. How can I pay a farthing when every penny I scrapes together will go into repairing our very modest means? There is the estate, Mr. Openshaw offered. The bank doesn't expect payment in full immediately. We are willing to evaluate new terms. Blood from a turnip, Nathan mumbled. What was that? Mr. Openshaw asked. I says, Nathan could feel the despair bringing the creature he wanted to hide up to the surface. It is impossible to squeeze blood from a turnip, sir. Peter's shipping is a turnip. If this company has any chance of making it, I would need to procure a loan from your institution. Yet there you sit, telling me that I owe more money than the king. How is it that I am to pay back a loan without having two shillings to rub together? Well... Mr. Openshaw stood and straightened his coat, the room pulsing with contention. I shall leave you to discover where your business stands. The bank will be more than accommodating, I assure you. With a little hard work and good British ethic, I believe you can make Peter Shipping a successful venture once again. Feeling his composure slipping once more, Nathan kept his mouth sealed with a tight, forced smile and a nod as Mr. Openshaw stepped to the door. Blood from a Turnip, 
The words gushed from his lips as he exhaled and turned to the window overlooking the harbor. He had assumed that when he became admiral of this enterprise, he would live life with his feet crossed, hands behind his head, and constant rest as the money rolled in. Instead, he felt like the cabin boy again. The estate? Bah! He'd have me waste my fortune on Edwin Sins just to fill his coffers. Well, I ain't gonna rob Peter to pay Paul. Nathan mused aloud, rummaging through the desk, hoping it held a solution to his problem. Unsatisfied, he grabbed his cloak and headed to the alehouse. His thoughts were always clear with a tonic in hand. Sober counsel, then farewell. Nathan bleated a sea shanty while stumbling from the carriage before Shellstone. Let the winds carry all me sorrows. One of the townsfolk chimed in. No, 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 Mr. Adelson corrected, standing in the door of the coach. Then, in his best singing voice, Let the winds that murmur sweep all me sorrows to the deep. With that, Mr. Adelson lost his balance and rolled back into his comrades, who continued on in ruckus laughter. Lifting his head, he yelled through the damp night air, Ho there, Nathan! We will invest the town's money! Do not worry about that bank! Peter Shipping yet lives! Nathan replied with open palms, trying to push the reverberating words down around him. Being drunk was a lifestyle, a lifestyle Nathan took to like a fish to swimming. His worries always became less bothersome the more freely the liquor flowed. It was only now, staring at the caramel swirls of the walnut front door, that he imagined how Margot was going to react. Don't you worry! The town won't let you down! Mr. Adelson yelled again as a whip cracked over the team, the carriage bouncing with laughter down the lane. Drunk! You are drunk! Margot yanked open the door, candelabra in hand. Do you know what time it is? I was worried... Sick! I was worried sick! Bah! Nathan grumbled as he worked his coat from his sweating body. Where have you been? It's almost one in the morning, Margot pressed. Will you shut it? Nathan finally exploded. I've been out with me mates, trying to find a way to save the company whose worthless former husband bankrupt. How dare you? Margot caught Nathan in surprise, slapping him across the cheek. Like a viper, he struck back, his fist closed, punching her in the jaw. The dainty Margot sprawled back onto the marble from the blow, blood trickling from her broken lip. Nathan stumbled and then bent down to lift her up. I'm sorry, he belched. Are you okay? Margot recoiled as her senses returned, her eyes filling with fear. She nodded, holding her face, the jaw still numb from the shock. I didn't mean it, Nathan tried to explain. It was me, it was me reflexes. Never. The word broke in her throat before she scrambled up the stairs. Unseen, Jacques' blue eyes were wide in the dark of his cracked bedroom door. Next time, we'll continue following Nathan as his true nature is revealed and see if Margot and Jacques have what it takes to combat the ominous shadow that has fallen over Shellstone Manor.